welcome to the Burnup Podcast, where we discuss all things agile software development and delivery. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques. We'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide needed inspiration. Hi, I'm Todd Anderson, Consultant Delivery Manager. I've done just about every job in IT, from tech support, programmer, network security, project and program management. I can't say I've done everything, but I've seen a lot. And I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, business analyst and product owner. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the block. And this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. Okay, this week we're talking with Erica about user research. Erica, introduce yourself. Hi, um, I'm Erica Kowalczyk. I'm a user experience researcher. Um, I've been a researcher probably uh, maybe about 12 years now. Over the past uh, six or seven years, I've been doing stuff related to um, user experience um, in academia, education, government, um, and yeah. Cool. So um, to understand the role a little bit more, what we what I normally ask is like, what do you say to your mum? What do you do? Okay. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good question because um, when I was doing academic uh, academic research, and um, that was really easily explainable to people, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, and then yeah. you, you bring in this kind of what is this like buzzwordy user experience thing. Um, and so I guess I explain it in that I um, help organizations to um, understand how people use their websites or products. Um, and also, uh, as a precursor to that, do people actually want this thing that a company is thinking about developing? Um, so, so what you do is, is, is related a lot to, I guess, value propositions, as we, as we say. So is it is right in, in, in saying that you understand the the needs and gains and pains part of value proposition in respect to target audience. Is, is, that, is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah, sure. I think it's, it's really all about understanding, um, I guess, less about the wants um, of um, the user, but actually what they need to achieve certain tasks and what the most important things they need from a product or service and prioritizing those um, and um, you know developing the things that should be developed and being able to have the evidence to say, I think we should park this feature or this idea mm -hmm. because research and evidence suggests that we don't need to do that. So, so earlier we had an episode with Tarek and Isabel talking about user experience and design, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is kind of in a similar wheelhouse. How do you, how would you say that you're similar to those roles, or overlap them, or different from those roles? I think there's a there's a huge overlap, and traditionally it would have you'd have had this kind of uh, user experience like unicorn who would do all the stuff. They would do their research, they would design the thing. Um, and they would test the thing as well. Um, I think uh, Government Digital Service really um, were instrumental in turning user research into a role in its own right to try and minimise some of the bias that can come if you're testing your own design, um, which I think mm. was happening if you had a UX team of one, um, which often happened um, before the discipline got developed, um, and you would have people testing their own designs and not really having somebody else in that area to bounce ideas off. So I guess as the... Um, Most people who work in user experience can do um, a little bit of some of the roles in their UX family. So a bit of content maybe, a bit of information architecture, a bit of um, pure design, a bit of uh, interaction design or a bit of research. 
but um, I think personally for me, I'm absolutely a research specialist um, who you know can do a little bit of some of the other parts. I mean, you said something interesting there about um, biases and stuff. Mm. Um, and I think quite often we get asked by clients, why should we pay for a researcher? Mm. I, as the client, I know my target audience. I tell you what they want. I tell you what the requirements are. Mm. Why do you you know need to do all this long-winded research? Um, so how, 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 how would you sell yourself or, you know, how can teams sell that role to a, to a client who may not be convinced initially? Mm. Um, yeah, I think that is one of the big issues. And you often hear that, uh, you know, I know my audience, I know who I'm selling yeah. to. And you can use little bits of evidence to try and, um, you know, uh, help to support the argument for needing to actually talk face to face to people. For example, a lot of companies have, uh, you know, customer service agents. You can review that those calls coming in, I'm having trouble with this part of your website, for example, I can't complete the checkout, and those kind of things. Um, and you really need to do a little bit more in-depth research with those people to kind of dig into those issues. Um, I also think that the kind of evidence base coming from, you know, within the company is inherently biased because you're, they're probably only hearing about either all the really good stuff that's coming through on reviews or the really negative yeah, stuff yeah. Mm-hmm. and not um, anything in the middle. Um, which is really, you know, the average user can be very, very useful um, when you're doing um, some user research to actually find out how people currently use the service or might mm. use a new feature. Because what we do basically is when we design anything, then we go in with a, an assumption or a hypothesis and that may be totally off. Mm. And I think what you do is you put some validity behind that or some justification. Yeah. Yeah. Evidence because, is the right word, yes. Because if you if you break it on paper, it's a lot cheaper to break on paper than the early stages going down, down yeah. you know, developing whole thing that's not quite right, right. And this is maybe a good point to uh, lead over to I think you were mentioning a while ago like the, the life cycle of this kind of design yeah, research yeah. process. So, so, so I know and mm-hmm. I also worked at GDS which you know obviously had a, a strong emphasis on this and the life cycle there is probably similar to what you're you're used to, where we had we had user research sessions, maybe I think once every two weeks or something like that, with actual real users, and it was in a studio, and then we recorded, and their eye, eye tracked, and all that sort of stuff, and we had live video feeds going to another room where a number of us could actually observe real users using the session. It was really eye-opening, uh, actually having a whole bunch of us from the program. Mm-hmm. Even though I was a program manager, a service manager, we had just people... We invited everybody, uh, on the, developers, anybody who would like to, to come and actually encourage them to come to these sessions. And then after those sessions, the findings were, were analyzed, and then those were baked back into the, the product. Is that is that your experience, or what? what is the... That's like what perfect looks like, I think. <laughs> how how often does that happen in reality? Is that a frequent thing? Um, there's a lot of factors involved to get that to get that running in that really nice way where you've got mm-hmm. first of all you've got to get participants every couple of weeks yeah uh, so we use an agency challenge. I think for that yeah, yeah there's an agency that we use to and sometimes though even um, particularly with government projects or very niche products or services even the best agency will find it very hard to find you regular bunch of people that meet your criteria um so that would be the first, um, I suppose that now I'm challenging, like the, the perfect idea, which is brilliant. You get people to come and observe the thing. You've got people to test with. You've got a prototype that, that works that, that you want to test. Um, and people are brought in and, and will then, you know, uh, listen, be receptive to the feedback um, 
from the participant that you're providing afterwards. But the reality can be a little bit different and it's not always done in a lab, you know, um, the research as well. I think that can be really useful and powerful for getting stakeholder buy-in. But sometimes um, the lab can be intimidating area mm, for participants right. they know they're being watched it's not a natural setting so i like to do um things in a slightly more, more relaxed grill, way. Gorilla, a gorilla testing type thing or is that, um, is that something more specific or? somewhere in the middle of the two not gorilla i would arrange the session before i like to give people the opportunity to you know reflect on taking parts they still get information sheet and i'm taking consent and all of that stuff but um, maybe done in a more natural setting. In let's say you know um, testing in their workplace, if mm. they usually use the thing at work, or maybe it's um, uh, maybe it's a retail um, product and it's something that they would normally do sitting on the sofa at home. Um, and how can you know what that's really like unless you're sitting with someone on their sofa while their kids are running around and their dishwasher's making a noise and, yeah. you know, it's all distracting and you want to see what the reality of that is when you're for somebody when they really would be using your thing in real life. I think I um, have an interesting um, example to that. I'm wondering whether, whether you had similar experiences where we did classic focus groups with uh, a user group. It was a retail client and they had an internal product catalog system and everyone hated that system they gave us all sorts of reasons why it wasn't the right system um, but then when we observed them doing the work we realized that the biggest problem was that it took 50 minutes to boot that system up mm. every morning right but no one articulated that because they had suffered that for three years that was just so normal for them that no one even thought about this and then once we realized that we could easily make that change and suddenly all the other problems weren't that big problems mm. anymore so i think do you do you find that sometimes looking at how people use software, how they behave, is very different to what they articulate and say? Um, yeah, I think when you're... And that comes down to also the way you're, you're testing and the, the way the researcher portrays themselves and the environment. If you set it up in a way that the user feels like they have to please you, ah. they might say, oh, you know, yeah, I think this is great and I would absolutely do this. Um, or you might unintentionally lead them into um, knowing how to use something, whereas if they're on their own, they might... Um, they might struggle. So it all comes down to kind of a good um, the, the research um, design and trying to make sure you're going to capture this um, in the testing that you do. But I, but, but I imagine that you also need to have an attitude of like having a blank slate every time you walk into that room yes. because you don't want to influence. Like how, how, how do you get yourself in that mindset that you, you don't influence the result or, or, or is that a struggle or is that do you have to do anything specific to prepare for that or is it just a mindset? I think it really comes with um, practice um, and, and probably it's a bit of an innate skill for a researcher to, you, you have to go in there as an open book kind of thing. And it can be difficult, I suppose, if you are, you're invested in a product and even if you're not the designer, you're working very closely with a designer who um, is probably quite invested in, in um, what they've created. Um, but you really have to ensure that you're asking people the same questions. It's always a fair kind of um, a fair starting point, a blank slate. So, you, as you say, so you would start off thinking, I'm going to go in with these preset objectives beforehand, and I'm going to make sure I cover these questions, and then I'm going to try out afterwards, even though it's qualitative research, to objectively go through and analyse it fairly against um, a set of preset criteria for what success looks like. Okay. That's for a usability kind of research. Before we go more into the mechanics, just to jump back a little bit. Mm. So we, we've talked about like sort of labs, you know, you rent lab space, you can have lab space, you talk about gorilla testing, that mm. sort of thing. 
Um, one thing that uh, I did on a previous project, we had a, a mobile sort of SDK thing, and we, we pushed user, user research to the client, and they were like, we don't have the budget. So what we did is we just actually set up our own little thing where we literally got a little uh, a smartphone mount on a tripod, mm-hmm. and it was just videoing people using this SDK on an iPhone. Um, and we had a little script, and we had you know ran through it. Uh, and and I just want to use that as an example that you, to get into this, you don't necessarily need a lab or some some huge thing. Mm. Like well, I don't mm. know what your experience with that is, or or if you can speak to how organizations can get into this space and get benefit from it without you know having to necessarily go you know rent a lab and go full bore on it. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't. Um... I sometimes hear people saying, oh, any research is better than no research. And I wouldn't say I agree with that because the research has to be good. So you get good stuff out of it. Yeah. It does sound yeah. like what you were doing. Um, you know, you'd settle that up. And, um, and I think that you can do this on an absolute shoestring if you don't. You don't need a lab. A quiet room is good. Um, you, you definitely don't want to be overlooked when you're doing research. If you can get a quiet room somewhere, maybe you can rent a space in a library or um, other uh, public um, kind of space that can be a hell of a lot cheaper or you might have offices um, where you work you don't need specialist equipment really you can record um, the screen using your phone and a, a you know tripod you can use screen recording software um, I've done a lot of research over um, over Skype um, internationally and just and then just use a free screen capture mm-hmm. um, when we didn't have any budget I, I very rarely use um, a specific software testing I think because when I had worked on um, I worked in previous projects we, we didn't have budget we had a very low budget and being um, my background is academia I mean you had nothing to work with really you know very limited budget and so you can get quite creative with that uh, do you have any specific tools that you've used in the past that people might be interested in or anything you'd recommend or um, yeah, well, my go-to, um, if I'm doing remote research, my go-to at the moment is I use appear.in. It's just a... Um, appear.in? Yeah. Okay. But put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's nothing, it's not a special UX tool, it's just a video calling thing. And then um, I use Windows rather than Mac, and I, I think on a Mac you can use QuickTime to record your screen, but on Windows you press Window key and G, and, sudden, and you can just record what's happening on your screen. It's a Windows game bar. So, so you give your computer to the the user while they're using it, so you can record the session. Is that you can it? do that that way. This I'm talking now about remote oh, okay, research. Remote. Okay. Um, specifically, that's what I've been using. But if you were working on your computer, sure, you can just um, record your screen um, while the person's interacting with it. The downside of, I guess, that free tool over something like um, a look back is that you can't capture their face as well as <laughs> the screen um, while you're using it. But um, you know, if you're in a no-budget situation, then that can be quite Again, useful. I think free tools are with kind of like limited uh, usage time or something out there that do that kind of thing. So, yeah. as you say, it doesn't have to be... And you can try loads of stuff out. On, um, I have to say, I love a free trial, and it's always worth, you know, trying stuff out. I've used Marais, I've used Lookback, um, and they are great tools. Um, but especially if you just, you know, if, if you are just starting out doing a bit, a small project or beginning of uh, you know trying out some UX research for the first time then um, you can explore kind of what works for you but I find that you can do things pretty low fidelity. Can I, can I ask you around you said something about like the, the, the research you do should be valid research or good research. Yeah. Sample size. 
So I guess coming from academia, you may have had slightly larger sample sizes. I found when I worked with government that we're testing with like five people every week. Yeah. Um, it was even harder in some cases to recruit five people, people on a weekly basis. But then what happens with five people when someone says something that you don't like, you're like, mm, that person was a bit special, maybe, you know. Um, or you, you can't, it's very easy with a sample of five to kind of not fudge the research, but kind of... Or, or over mm. below, like, I, I think mm. this is the question I asked Tarek and Isabel, the sort of quantitative versus qualitative. Mm. And yes. when you have that small sample size then suddenly, like, oh, you know, two people didn't like something. Suddenly yes. you're changing your type oh, of application. Exactly. So, so you can either overblow the results or fudge it and, and dismiss it because it's such a small sample size. Mm. I think what we're, you know, the thing with the qualitative research, if, when we're talking about usability testing or um, interviews, we're not looking for statistical significance. Right. We're looking for, um, you know, trends or and uh, trends in behavior. And we're definitely not, you know, we shouldn't be looking at, what people perhaps like or don't like mm -hmm. if somebody said I don't like that because it's pink you know I'm not really interested in that as a finding but if I find that two people can't do you know something that would be critical like they can't complete a checkout process or they uh, can't yes. um, figure out how to enter their uh, um, name into a form field then I would say okay even two out of five if you extrapolate that to a larger um, number of people with the amount of people using your product or service that could be a huge amount of people I don't know not able to complete a public facing service or not completing your checkout and losing you a bunch of money so you could use that as quite a persuasive tool um, well and you can use that to as a basis to then develop a quantitative uh, test to follow up to, yeah. to really nail it home if you really had to right sure I think that's a really good point I was just about to say that what we do, I guess, quite often is we start at the beginning of the project where we don't know much at all and we do kind of, you know, find the value proposition, some research there. Then as you de design maybe a prototype, you test that. Mm -hmm. But then once that thing is live, you would, of course, get in with web tracking or analytics mm -hmm. that then with far larger volumes of users kind of justifies or, or validates and tests what you've done and then you can do A, B testing, M, B testing and that stuff. Exactly. And I think all these things need to come together, right? It's, it's not one or the other right yeah totally it's just different um different methods and tools for different stages of the project life yes. cycle and if you're thinking about let's say the beginning of a project maybe you're in alpha and you've got like a couple of different um prototypes that you're testing it, i mean it, it would take hours and days to do enough hour-long research usability sessions to reach a statistical significance yes. right so you have to um, you know, look at those trends, look at the themes, and make these very like iterative changes based on how confident you are that this thing that you, maybe you've observed this behaviour is a showstopper or not, um, and decide whether you can you should iterate on that confidently um, or you need to do more research. And then when you get into beta and you've got enough users, then you you definitely can start doing some um, multivariate testing, some maybe testing. Um, and actually, and then you can you know have a big enough sample more easily to seek statistical significance. So that's actually a good segue because I, I want to start getting into like the actual nuts and bolts of what you do. So like if you start going through the process of like how do you design a test, how do you run the test, and then how you do the post -anal analysis, like what's that process look like? Um, do you want to talk about that in terms of like in uh, interview uh, or um, usability test? Maybe a usability test. Yeah, or, just or, or you just can say what the difference is. Maybe. I guess. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, I guess 
you might be at the beginning of a project doing. Um, I, I guess maybe maybe I'm thinking a website, you know, a website checkout process or something okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Some, some, some critical path yeah. piece of a of a website might be easiest thing to pick off, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, first of all, you probably want to be working with your team to find out what they need to know, and let's assume that. Um, we could assume that for the argument's sake that I'm fresh onto the project, I'd want to know what had been done before and what we already knew and where we, how we'd come to the design and decisions that we'd made previously. Um, but let's say we're at the beginning of a sprint and we want to test this checkout process. I'd want to um, pull the team together and say, what do we, what do we need to know? Um, and you would use that to structure um, the structure their testing schedule. So it might be, okay, we want to, um, we need to know if people can you know, make it through this checkout process. We need to know um, if people can use um, the form to fill in, I don't know, their address, let's say they're having something posted to them after the purchase. Um, and then you design a kind of series of tasks um, for that session and decide in advance, okay, what does su- success look like? Success is that people can reach the checkout process and, and success would be that people can um, fill in their address in, in this form. Um, and then you may have some, you probably want a, a little bit of um, back and forth questions at the beginning, a little bit of extra discovery to understand a bit more about the context of the person. Um, and I, I always try and introduce that at the beginning, even um, in, a, you know, in a pure usability. Is that, is that just like an ice, icebreaker type questions or, or sort of like, yeah, because I've seen that as well, mm. where they sort of say, okay, what's your background? You know, are you good at using computers? How do you feel comfortable using computers? Like that sort of, those sort of questions or what? Yeah, some of it would definitely be that. You'd want to establish a bit of a rapport with the person, kind of put them at ease um, and find out about their context for using the thing um, and their confidence, as you say. Um, but also, you, you may be, I don't know, sometimes you'll be working on one project, you might also need to discover something in a related product or something, or part of that service, or maybe there's something you're just not sure about, about um, that you could perhaps uncover with a little bit of back and forth interviewing. Um, so I tend to try and include something like that at the beginning of a session, if it's valid. Um, and then you would have this kind of, you might have a series of tasks um, but also some exploratory um, questions. I don't know, would say something like, um, you know, you've landed on this page before you click on it. Um, tell me, uh, who do you think this page is for? What do you think you can do here? Mm-hmm. Those right. kinds of questions. Right. Um, and a little bit to try and understand um, what they think. I would... so, so, so you set up a scenario where you say like, okay, you've, you've put some stuff in your basket yeah. and you, you're now, you click checkout in your basket and now you've landed on this page, you know, and then go from here, right? Yeah, and you might, yeah, it might be something like, okay, show me how you would uh, buy a black dress um, okay. in a size medium um, and have it sent to you at work or something like that. And then they would go through the process. But what you would want them to do, and you'd set this up at the beginning, is um, have them think aloud, use the think uh, aloud technique yes, as they're doing yes, it. Yes, that's critical, yeah. That can be really hard for some people, um, <laughs> yeah. especially, um, actually most of the people who would volunteer for usability tests could be quite um, willing to talk and be extrovert. But you do, and you want the breadth of people. And sometimes you get people who would a little bit more introvert who really do struggle to... Um, so, so that's actually asking the, the person to think what say what they're thinking. Dream of consciousness, right? Yeah, yeah. Say what they're thinking while they're yeah, looking yeah, at yeah. it. Because when they, they get stuck or something, then the user researcher sometimes prompts them and says, 
you know, you're getting stuck. What are you thinking right now? And then yeah. they say, like, I can't figure out, you know, which button to click next or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So usually in the setup of the research, when you're explaining, you know, how the session will go, you tell them you're going to run some scenarios and, um, you know, you would explain everything. Like, there's no right or wrong answers. We're just interested in... Um, you know how how you use this thing, and you're not going to offend me because I didn't design it. Usually, even though sometimes you yeah. have designed it, <laughs> yeah, you always have to have that yeah. part, and even if the designer is probably also observing. Um, but you would try and explain the think aloud technique and just give an example. So you could say something like, uh, you know, you may um, as you're looking through this page, you may notice as something that draws your eye, and it would be very helpful if you could say, oh, I've seen that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna click on that now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm interested to know um, what's on the next page, or just something like that, and just give them a bit of an example. But, but also another trait, though, is you let them talk and you don't prompt them, right? Because mm. I know that, that's also sort of counterintuitive because you, you, you want to help. You know, yeah. if somebody's struggling, you want to yeah. help them as a person. But I know the better user researchers will let them struggle a little bit to see if they find their way through it eventually mm. or not. I don't know if there's... That can be so um, hard to let that silence just, um, you know, yeah. sink in there. But you really do have to give um, the the uh, participant or user the chance to um, try and figure that out on their own or not, because that's what you really want to see. Um, you want to see what would happen if you weren't there. This person is trying to really do this task alone. How long does it take them? Are they mm-hmm. going to give up? Do they have any workarounds? Um, you know, if you're sitting with someone, you can see... I've seen people become, you know, physical signs of anxiety about not being oh, able to do the thing. And um, you have to, um, obviously, try and take it as far as you can go. But if it goes too far, I would, I would try and get, the, get them back on track. Uh-huh. Um, but you would note that as a kind of, you know, we, we weren't able to complete this <laughs> task. Yeah. Um, and then move on to the next thing so that you can still you know utilize the rest of the session you don't, you wouldn't want to leave somebody floundering for half an hour yeah yeah, um, <laughs> yeah right there is you a little until yeah. they are like crying bundle <laughs> in the corner exactly. yeah. um, but that can be okay. very very powerful if you're trying to persuade a stakeholder uh, just a quick one on this so because you said okay there is this important uh, silence and giving them space yeah. do you find there is the other thing where you um, have to denoise some of the stuff people waffle at you so I was in a session where someone was like oh I'm a designer as well and I really don't like the design you've done here and the design of this brand which was exactly the brand we were designing for but he didn't know is much better than what you've done Mm. and they give you a lot of like because I think people want to be helpful right they want to give you advice even and it's like no we're not really looking for advice do you you feel there's a little bit of that I've had that a lot and um, you do have to you know um, balance that out and also Try and bring people back around to like, and you've got to take control of the session. You're leading right. the session. You really need to show that. Um, I did do some testing with some teenagers once, and one of them said, oh, "I'm studying um, software development. I've been into your code, and I don't like what they've done here." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Okay, thank you for that. That's great feedback. Now can we uh, just, <laughs> just click that button?" Yeah. Um, so. You do get that, but cool. you also, you know, if you're working on a service, um, which I've done, which it has a, you know, uh, it could have a life-changing impact on the person completing that task. Um, for example, you know, maybe a government-type mm. service. Um, you can sometimes run across people who've had really bad experiences previously, and they want to tell you about them. And you have to 
uh, allow that a bit. Okay. I will allow Good a bit point. of yeah. that. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise it's like, it feels like, oh, this is all take. All I want is to get the insights from you and I'm not letting you give me anything. You need to have empathy, right? Yeah. To build this relationship. and Yeah. 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 So, so just to, to move it along. So you've designed the tests. You're, you're, you've run the scenarios based on what it is you want to find. You've recorded those. Now you go into some sort of analysis mode. Is that yeah the next bit? Yes. Um, so depending on the kind of um, thing you've done, I think if you're doing a discovery interview, you'd come out with absolutely loads of qualitative insights, and I think that can be massively overwhelming for um, maybe a new, a new researcher. Um, whereas if you've done a usability test, it can be a bit more okay. This you know I observed this. This um, task was completed. Um, this one was not um, and maybe it's a bit clearer um, because you have kind of observations of behaviour but in either scenario what you'd probably want to do is a quick debrief with the people who'd been um, observing the research with you yeah. usually I'd like to have at least one person observing and helping taking notes but then you typically go into kind of a thematic analysis and obviously you need to turn the insights around quickly to the team it's nice to be able to give, um, you know, a top level, you know, three key things um, that happened in the session. Mm-hmm. Back to you oh, okay, team. Yeah. But you've got to be clear that, you know, we're not acting on this, what happened in this one session, but th- this is some insights and it'll go into the pool and we'll look at... Um, we'll turn Wait, and do, do you have a technique for doing that? Like, a, so, so at, at GDS, they had a, actually a team of researchers that were lucky enough to have a whole team. Yeah. Um, when what they would do is they sort of play back through the videos or whatever, and then as a group they'd all have post notes and they'd sort of like put put them on the walls and sort of group them underneath these themes. Every time someone said something that they didn't like that button or the color, that they would sort of group it underneath those themes. Yeah. And then they could sort of step back and sort of see the themes all together. And just by the mass of post notes, they could see what things were sort of hot button issues and whatnot. I don't know. Do you have any techniques like that or? Yeah, I mean, typically um, you you are the one researcher in the team. I've been lucky enough to be on a team more recently where there were two of us, which can be quite useful for mm-hmm. cross validating. But the process I would go through is very similar to that. Um, I would usually listen back to the sessions if um, I've got time. I try not. I won't bother recording a session if I don't think I'm going to have a chance to do anything with that recording. I'm quite. Um, I, go, I guess one of my rules about not over collecting data, a self rule that I won't over collect data from people if I don't need to. But um, if I've got an observer um, or a recording, I'll go back through it all and start to pull out those themes as you mentioned. I might have a predefined set of um, tasks that I'm going to map those themes against. But typically, I would do it um, insights on a post-it note. Um, and starting to group those and then start okay what does what does this group of stuff mean okay all of this stuff relates to navigation or all of this stuff relates to being uncomfortable with you know something about the product mm-hmm. um, and then I would start to um, okay think okay how confident am I about these things um, what do I um, want to feedback to the design team and the dev team about um, what we should iterate upon um, for the next for the next round, I would just to say, I suppose as a researcher, I don't believe that when I'm in that role as a researcher, I don't believe it's my role to um, make design recommendations. I was just about to ask that. So when you say, what do you feedback are observations, maybe qualified with how significant they are, mm-hmm. but as you just said, you wouldn't think that it's yours to recommend a solution to the problem. I mean, you would yeah. be possibly part of the iteration, but. You are not making the, the recommendation on your own. Um, absolutely, that would be. Um, so that, that's where the product owner, then the, the designers, and the designers, designers on yeah, the team. come back in. 
and on a really, uh, you know, a team that's working really well together, you would, I would typically make these kind of actionable insights about what I'd seen, right, um, yep. or observed, and what happened in the sessions, um, and hopefully the designers will have been in those sessions and observed them too. Um, so we don't have to have a back and forth about uh, that. So, so, so what's an example of an actionable insight? Like, how would you state that? Like, if we're a checkout scenario or something like that, I don't... Um, I would say that, okay, um, five, uh, four out of five people um, didn't see, um, couldn't see where the submit button was on this form. Um, recommend um, repositioning. Repositioning or redesign or design tweak or something like that. But I just don't, um, and then I would be happy to work with the designers <laughs> on, okay, you know, based on what I saw, you know, maybe how would I think it would work based on some solution ideas they come up with. But I don't think it's the role of the researcher to um, make those recommendations. And, and, and what, what uh, form does your playback to the team take? Is it usually like you're, you're sort of like have a meeting or something and you so say, these are the results, here are my findings... And, and it's just like a little PowerPoint thing and you pull out some examples or something or what? Usually I would ask who I'm working with and what the format they would prefer. Because right. like you can do it in many different ways, but people have different attention spans, less time, um, and may find things uh, you know, useful in different ways. Um, my go-to would be um, a little PowerPoint with um, a screenshot of the screen. Um, and then um, a set of things that I noticed and maybe prioritised by um, or indicated somehow um, how confident I was that this was an issue or how much of an issue this was, mm-hmm. maybe a red, amber, green or something like that. Um, and then some quotes um, to support that from the research. Um, you can make video clips um, and do like a little show and tell back that way. Yeah, so I've, I've, the nice thing about recording is doing little video clips yeah. and then even in some showcases that I've had, sometimes you play back little clips of people using mm-hmm. it. And, and Because some people are like genuinely, like they're like, this is so much easier than the way I have been doing it. This will mean a lot to me. Like you mm-hmm. say, it could be really meaningful to them. Yeah. And actually having some of those clips and those little things is kind of a nice thing to showcase for for people and to motivate the team and, and it's, it's neat it's neat to have that actual yeah. insight from real users using it who have really no reason to lie or or skew the you know mm, yeah, skew yeah. It in the, your favor so yeah definitely I think it can be useful to um, to record if you are um, going to get the opportunity and the time mm. to create those clips and use them to play back and you have to be clear that you get permission to record. Oh, that's someone say that, yeah, GDPR and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah that's need a to, huge well, and I think most if you're working with an agency, it's it's probably going to be part of that. But uh, yeah, you need to have. But, a, but even if you're just doing it with friends formal, or something, yeah. you should probably make sure that you have permission to record them. And yeah, yeah, most definitely. I'm really um, obviously with GDPR. Um, actually, um, myself and a couple of other people in the field, we wrote an article on um, what had uh, GDPR meant for user researchers. Um, because we started to think, how is this going to affect us? What do we need to Interesting. do? Interesting. We'll yeah, we'll link definitely to that. Yeah, yeah, so we just put a medium out about that, um, mm-hmm. and we were thinking, what does this mean for our consent forms and the way we uh, uh, gather and store data? Yes. Um, and you really do have to be explicit about what you're collecting and be much more granular about the consent um, and who's going to um, give people the option about who's going to see the recording. You can't just say within the organisation anymore it could be okay within our team you know within the mm. within everybody in the organization with the maybe if you use a transcription service you don't have to say i'm going to send right. this that's outside. a really good point yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and how long it's going to be stored for and one of the big um 
one of the things that does happen with large organisations, and especially if you are relying on, um, if you use a lot of contracts researchers, you, you might get loads of recordings uh, or data or raw data or participant information, and it just gets shoved in a drive, and people leave, and nobody knows when it can be archived or um, how to retrieve it, because under GDPR now, if somebody comes and says, I want to know everything you hold on me, um, company you X, find that? you have right. to be yeah. able to tell them. Sure. And if you haven't, uh, if that hasn't been stored um, in a consistent way, um, you'll find that difficult. So yeah. let's let's shift gears and talk mm-hmm. about like how well. So how how did you come into doing this? Like how how would somebody who's new to this get into this? And and what does good look like? Let's talk yeah. a little bit about that. Okay. Um, so my background is um, academic research, really. So I studied psychology. Um, and then finished a psychology degree and realised you can't be a psychologist um, at the end of that, so you have to go and do something else. Um, so I started getting into the research side of things really more than practice, um, so I was doing um, health psychology. Um, I ended up doing my PhD in um, uh, health psychology at Loughborough, and um, we were working on a lot of um, sleep-related um, technology stuff, uh, an online therapy programme for insomnia for use of the NHS, and we were testing out some uh, sleep measurement um, watches. Um, and I started to get a bit more interested in like, that side of things. Okay, how do people use these things that are being developed by academics um, in offices? Oh, okay. Um, and so my um, trajectory started to go that way, um, uh, moving into uh, more usability research rather than the academic side of things. Um, and I started teaching methods for a little while and realised like I really liked... Um, that and thinking about how that would transfer into user research and I think that's why I'm really really interested it's still very much in ethics and mm-hmm. methods and uh, I don't know reproducibility of the work that you're doing because of that academic background um, that I've had um, but and anyway and then I started working um, um, in education but more on marketing side of things website um, testing um, and user research, and then started doing government stuff. And I think I've um, there's been a lot more opportunities for kind of a pure researcher um, in the field of government. But a lot of um, other organisations are now realising the value of bringing in um, a researcher to complement a designer, even not for the you know length of the projects, maybe just um, on an ad hoc basis. But I think. Um, a lot of people come into user research. I know a lot of people who come in from my kind of background, from a social sciences kind of um, background, with with research training as part of that. Um, but a lot of people do migrate from design um, roles mm-hmm. um, because they had done a little bit of research as part of that, or a lot of research as part of being a designer, and realised actually they kind of enjoyed that, the talking to people um, and gathering those insights. Um, so I don't think there's one fixed route, but I do believe that um, to be a researcher and to talk to people and gather their personal information, you have to um, uh, to be trusted with that. You, you have to know what you're doing with that data, mm-hmm. um, and you should manage it properly and with care and uh, work to research ethics and data protection regulation, all of that. And I, I think that if you haven't come from a research-trained background... There's a lot of, you know, you don't have to be formally trained or anything, but it would really help 
um, researchers coming from other backgrounds, if they, you know, read a social sciences text or some online training or mm-hmm. spoke mm-hmm. to somebody who had had that training, just to make sure um, they kind of know what they're doing with uh, with with data. So, 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 what qualities make a good researcher? I think you need to be a really good um, communicator, and you need to like people. Um, because you'll be talking to a lot of them as part of your um, role. And you need to be able to communicate with the people you're testing with, but also to communicate to um, persuasively to other people um, in your team about the insights that you've found. Um, I think um, you need to be um, able to think on your feet and kind of, um, you know, for a research session, they're not always going to go to plan. Things might go horribly wrong. Someone might cry um, or the tech might not work or... You know, you need to be adaptable and think. Okay, what am I going to do instead? Um, and still get something out of and it. And still get something yeah. out of it. So I um, had turned up to a research session um, internationally, expecting to do one-on-one testing, and I turned up in the room, and there were like you know twelve people in there, um, and <laughs> yes. they'd all turned up. And I think, you know, what am I going to do? Okay, I need to turn this into a focus group. I know there's Aww. another person here who's done that before. I'll brief them, and then we did two little groups. And I think. Um, you have to be uh, adaptable uh, and not crumble under that kind of situation because mm-hmm. you still want to get some, um, you know, as I said before, it's got to be good data, but um, it, you know, you'd rather not lose that um, session. If you can, you could turn it into something else. How good does your math skills have to be? Like, is there a lot of statistics in what you do? Um, I don't think... Um, the majority of user research is qualitative, Although, um, and I think when you get to the stage of doing, um, you know, AB or multivariate testing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, you know, a computer will do most of that for you, although mm-hmm. it will help if you understand um, some of the, uh, you know, what the significance testing is actually testing for. Um, but I don't think it has to be great. I mean, it's... mine's not that great, I think. <laughs> so so I think, I think yeah, you don't have to be like super heavy into data analysis, like the, the kind of statistical academic level or anything like it's it's a bit lighter than that for it's me. i think it's um you know qualitative research is still um you know a, an absolute skill oh totally yeah, um, yeah but and i think there are roles within the ux family that are a bit more um you know kind of um analytical or you you know you could be you know a data analyst or somebody who really specializes mm-hmm. in doing um ab a- a- and mvt um testing and that kind of thing but i think um There's a real skill in, in pulling together all of that qualitative data, you know, masses of mm. um, uh, insights and quotes and um, transcripts and, and pulling out what makes sense um, yeah. and what's what's actually useful um, and usable um, and will add value to the delivery process and the design. And I would think do, do so quite quickly these days, right? I mean, I've worked yeah. on projects in the past where... Some researchers and UX guys were doing six months just defining personas, which were then never used or For turned sure. out to be, because personas are never accurate and exact, mm. right? Um, whereas I think these days, as Todd, you just said, or both of you said, we, we iterate like bi-weekly. So you mm. do every week, every other week research. So you, you can't spend five weeks on compiling your results. You need, this, this needs to be there the next yeah. day, basically, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges um, For me, having come from um, that background of academia, where uh. you you know you, you <laughs> a lot of time alone and you're you're crafting this thesis and a report, and you really think, you know, I'm going to publish this and people are going to love it, and you have a long time to do that. And actually, this is it's a complete change of p- 
pace and and it's 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 better you're getting you know maybe a smaller amount of insight but regularly intuitively mm, yes. um and actually involving other people in that um, analysis process um, um in your team and you really should be as a researcher if you can drawing upon other people in your team to be involved um, in that process with you, which can massively speed things up. So, so to, to wrap this up, is there anything you can say to somebody who wants to get into this or an organization that wants to try this? Is there anything you can say to encourage them? Um, yeah, of course. I think that there's always the opportunity to start small, um, you know, pick something off that you think, you know, that there's a problem here. And I think I'd like to, you know, know more about that. You could pick something, you know, low key off in your organisation that you think might have an impact. And probably if you've never done it before, you know, there's great resources online, some brilliant books and, and start to think about how you can plan your first session and maybe just run something with, you know, uh, you know, five to eight people. Um, and just run a few um, sessions um, just to try just to try out your um, method um, and test out you know f- feeding that back to people in the organization seeing if you can make a difference um, um, by, by actually gathering some evidence um, and making some recommendations for things that could change and that could if you start small that could uh, start to help you get buy-in for um, maybe something a little bit bigger in the future yeah, and I think the my parting thought is that I really want to make sure that people who are planning teams don't forget about this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I want yeah. to make sure you know you're going to have your developers, your business analysts, your delivery leads, or whatever. Uh, but you know, so you need to add some time for user research, design, UX, and their different roles. Make sure you have different light items for that. And it, it's not necessarily always a full time job um, on, a, on, a, on a project, but it is worth making some, some budget allowance for that. So, because again, it'll save you a lot of money in the long run. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those roles, if you haven't worked with that role or used that role, you don't know what you're missing. Mm. And then yeah. once you've worked with someone who's good, then you're like, whoa, okay, this was, you know, there's so much value in this. And I didn't even know that value could be delivered and existed. And mm. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 That's it for today's episode. Have a look at our show notes with related information and details on how to get in touch at thebarnup.com. We are listener-driven, so please do send us your questions, comments, and ideas for new episodes. We're both practitioners and are happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit burnupmedia.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.